Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 61 for Friday, October 16th, 2020. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer, Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Maston. Hello, it's we're back. It's Star Trek Discovery time. Yay, it is. Star Trek Discovery is back on the air. Season 3, Episode 1 debuted yesterday, Thursday, October 15th. And that episode was That Hope Is You, Part 1. Picking up right where Season 2 finale ended off with Michael Burnham and the Discovery warping through a wormhole into the far-flung future, 930 years into the future, I believe. Yeah, a whole bunch of time, a time period that we have not seen in Star Trek before. We've been, I've been wondering what other temporal threads of Star Trek could weave into this. Like, are we going to see the, uh, what, what were they called, the temporal police from Star Trek Voyager? <laughs> You know. uh, they were from the seven or 800 years in the future from Voyager, I think. What about the Temporal Cold War and Agent Daniels? That is as close as we're getting here. And that is okay. mentioned in the show here, or alluded to in the show here. De- Lieutenant Daniels is like a century before uh, hmm. this takes place. What about the Voyager episode Living Witness, where a copy of the Doctor wakes up in a museum in the future? That takes place after this. Oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> So there's, it's unlikely we're going to see those pop up in here. Maybe I'm still trying to figure out where that short trek that we saw, what was the name, like Calypso or... Yeah, Calypso, and I think that takes place a thousand years after this even. After this? Yeah. Like in the year 4000? I think so, but I'm a little foggy on this, but I remember it's very far-flung future. Wow. I, I didn't realize it was that far ahead. Hold on. I, I got to figure this out. Pulling up Star Trek wikipedia and what does it say what year it is i uh, think the closest we had was a vague like, that's been x thousand years oh it says that discovery's computer zora has been evolving over the past thousand years all right so we don't According know to memory alpha yeah so let's see we don't know how long it took to even start evolving right it's a thousand years from some indeterminate date uh <laughs> great but enough of those other shows. Why don't we talk about the season opening? Do you want? Shall I do a brief TLDR for those who didn't see the episode? Yeah, you should. I think you had uh, something in mind. Yeah, uh, you know, we, you and I have waffled on whether or not this TLDR is even necessary because this is a spoiler cast. People who are listening to the show have seen the episode, so I don't know how much detail we need to go into. So I'm going to do this very quickly, which is that Michael Burnham arrives in the future in her Red Angel suit. And teams up with a environmentalist courier named Book, who, through a series of misadventures, they learn to trust each other and go in search of the discovery from which she has been separated, either by time or by space, after finding out that the Federation itself has not existed for 120 years due to all dilithium crystals, all, almost all, simultaneously exploding. Boom. Done. Yeah. There you go. All right. Thanks for coming. <laughs> I don't know why they took 45 minutes to tell that story. Yeah, and we will certainly have more thoughts on the details of the episode. But, you know, that's the overall arc of the episode. That's what happened. Yeah. Uh, 
Wow, they got right into the action. Uh, this this little bit here is what we talked about last week, where they had previewed some of the episode. Uh, and it was kind of waffling on if you were going to watch it or not. And I guess I didn't get back to you, but really, like, I don't think there was anything spoilery about that that you didn't already know in those first opening minutes. Uh, yeah. I didn't end up watching that YouTube video. So how much of the opening was it? Was it just Book being chased and then Michael crashing into him? Exactly right there. Uh, uh, they landed on the planet and uh, that's it. Did she send the Red Angel suit back through the wormhole? Not in the preview. Okay. I'm really glad that she sent the Red Angel suit back through the wormhole because that addresses an inconsistency I had, which was if she sent the signal, the red flare from the future, how would Spock have seen it? And even if she sent it from the present, our present, or Spock's present, rather, from that distant planet, that distant planet is so far away, it would have taken him forever to see it. But the answer is she sent the signal from Spock's time and in the space where that final battle occurred. So that finally makes sense to me. Good, good. Like, yeah, I honestly had... I didn't. I I had rewatched season one of uh, Discovery, but I hadn't gotten to season two yet. I had started it, but I didn't finish it, so I'd forgotten. Kind of just in quick. If I had been pressed, I could have answered. But in this moment, I kind of forgotten. Like, oh yeah, Control is trying to wipe out all life, and so yeah, yeah, so that excitement on the bottom planet when she was uh, like other life signs, and it doesn't specify. It could have been plants. But uh, she was excited. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. In those quick second, a few seconds, I remembered exactly what happened in the last season. I, too, had forgotten that. I thought she was scanning for Discovery's life signs. But when she realized that basically the whole reason they went to the future was, in fact, a success, they created a new timeline that is more enriched with life than the one Control would have created. That is why she was so happy. And then, of course, she sent the Red Angel back through the wormhole and... She had another burst of emotion that I think was both relief, but also anguish because, yes, they did succeed, but at what cost? No, it's a huge cost. Uh, you, you are likely in a place where nothing looks familiar. I mean, even if you and I went back 20 years, uh, things <laughs> would look similar. But then if we went back 50 years, like we would, all the stuff we would know is from history, not because we know it and just the further we go back like you are leaving more and more behind of yourself of what you know and on that note i thought it odd that burnham and book could even communicate because language and vocabulary evolves so much so quickly i recently watched the two season time travel series timeless which i highly recommend and at one point they go back i think into the 30s or 40s and they're hanging out in Hollywood and they're talking about movies and they say, spoiler, Rosebud is the sled. And somebody else says, what's a spoiler? <laughs> you know, and that's less than a century. And here, Michael has gone forward nine centuries and all the same lingo. I mean, okay, it's science fiction and, you know, this is the same TV show where all the aliens speak English and they figured out a way to do that. So maybe this is a uh, translator that she has that converts 30th century English into whatever, but it's something that, you know, as a pedant, I picked up on. <laughs> I would agree. If this was hard science fiction, I think they would probably go that route. But in Star Trek, they typically just use that for when they go to the past and say words, uh, but not when our characters go into the future. 
That's true. I mean, we saw Kirk go back to Edith Keeler's time, and clearly he had to hide where he was from, but there was no communication issue. Yeah, I think in Star Trek, that stuff's usually done tongue-in-cheek, because if people just start throwing in new words uh, from this 900-year-in-the-future uh, scenario, uh, I think it would more lose the audience in ways that probably are not good to watch. This is true. And speaking of which, uh, you know, I just mentioned multilingual translators and the like. Uh, wh- there was a lot of focus this episode on the technology of the future. Was there anything in particular that you stood out to you or what you wanted to comment on? You know, not even... Okay, so this, this show opened with uh, a gentleman in what we found out to be a uh, a Starfleet vessel or ship station. But like, everything was being replicated as he needed it. Uh, the bed would be dematerialized and the table would come up. And because Discovery had shown us their own version of uh, replicators, this didn't seem too far flung off from normal tech that we saw in Star Trek. And honestly, nothing here really stood out to me as super sci-fi, super futuristic. And I think that's just the problem of Star Trek already is that. And so things don't look so weird. Like even mobile tele or transporters that Burnham was excited about existed in uh, uh, the TNG era, I guess, to put it uh, a general term, timeline. So nothing here stood out other than the terrible hand, literal hand cannons. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that about the transporters, which was Data and Picard essentially used one at the end of Nemesis that Geordi had invented. And we are to expect that 900 years later, it hasn't changed that much. I mean, we saw, I think also what you're talking about with the TNG era, in Picard, when they went to Free Cloud, they had these personal transporters. So I, that didn't seem a big change to me, not nine centuries worth. Oh, nothing here except those terrible hand cannons. Oh, I hated those guns. I hated those. Why? They're so inaccurate. Like, you'd have to, like, they were just far flinging, and unless there's some tech that helps you point things that we could not see as viewers, you're just pointing your arm in the general direction. Like, these were not made for accuracy. These were meant to, if you hit it, you destroy it's good (laughs) i mean it's the same kind of perhaps a different function but the same form factor as what we see in video games like portal yeah but no no this felt so wrong (laughs) even then like no guns have sights for a reason but do phasers have sights uh i suppose no but then even then they still trying to they have more control. With this on your hand, you lose some functionality. You can't just, looks like you can't easily just drop it and pick it up and go. It's just, they felt so wrong. And you're not even talking about the limit break cannons that you hold to your chest and you pull apart. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Which was interesting. Even more indiscriminate. Yeah. I don't know. And it's here. I didn't it like seems- them. It seemed more like a sonic blast because there was no physical damage to the people it hit. It just concussed them or something. Yeah, yeah, it just threw them back. I mean, that can be very useful if you're, you know, for whatever situation. But now the weaponry here left much to be desired for me. I, maybe I'm missing something. But eh. Yeah, I mean, even Book Ship, he had a cloaking device, which we've seen. He had, you know, as soon as Michael walked aboard the ship, she was able to say, say like, 
here's the transmitter, here's the receiver, subcommunications array. Like she recognized everything, even if the interface was different. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that <laughs> seems plausible. Like your steering wheel, but then, you know, you, if you look for new ones. Well, like, let's say that somebody who is using an Apple II computer in, 1990, in 1977, you know, it's text only, 40 characters across, black screen, green text, keyboard input, and that's it. And then you give them a computer from 2020 that has a trackpad, an Oculus Rift, a, a GUI interface. Although I guess that's redundant. I'm sorry, just a GUI. <laughs> and like, they would have a hard time initially figuring out what these things do. I mean, there are still people who think, oh, this this mouse, that's a foot pedal, right? Or this disk drive, that's a cup holder, right? I mean, or these this, things happen. <laughs> this mouse is a microphone. Right. Hello, computer. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. And, you know, and that's a good point. Like, Scotty went back, what, two, three hundred years, and he didn't know how to use a computer. Michael goes forward 900, and she's like, oh, this is how it works. I get it. I, I mean, to get into the weird argument i don't know if it's an argument but uh, a case for this we're like uh once you get to a point where you you have more inputs is it's hard to add more inputs that aren't like telepathic or something at this point in time and have so, you ever played steel battalion no <laughs> wait 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 is that the one where the arcade game where you put the thing on your head and you no, it's the okay. Xbox game. It's a mech simulator. It comes with its own forty-button controller. Oh, <laughs> they have a they have like a a Steel Battalion room at PAX East where people just bring these rigs. It's nice. It's remarkably authentic. <laughs> uh, but in general, like at some point, they're just changing the UI. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a little I, more or less the same idea. I suppose. I mean, I, I guess you're right. Functionality wise. What more can you do that isn't already being done with a next generation era computer? You know, it'll it'll get faster, and the interface might change to be more efficient. But how many different ways are there to launch a subspace communication? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anything else about the, about the technology, or do you want to talk about the characters? Uh, I thought the the book being able to pull up uh his own little personal iPhone. Uh, you know, like digital, you know, like little holographic image of his control deck. I mean, you can control his computer or ship from wherever uh, with that oh. little interface. I thought that was neat looking. I liked that too. Could you help me understand? I think I missed something. Where was that interface drawn from or what powered it? Did he have like some sort of a bracelet on? Uh, it was not obvious. He would just always put his hand in the air and it would just appear. So that was left to be magic for now, at least. Okay. I, I mean, future magic. Maybe he has some sort of a some haptics installed under his thumbprints and fingerprints. And I'm not being facetious. That would be a feasible way to implement that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, there was weapon I thought, thought a weapon I thought was neat here. Um I don't usually focus on weapons, but this is like where the technology was most different. Um when he's fighting Michael at the beginning, he lobs a knife at her. He throws it against the ship, and it comes right back to his hand. Oh, it came back? I missed that. Yeah, I, I didn't catch it the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched it, I rewatched that scene a few times. And yeah, he throws it, misses, bounces out of the ship, and back into his hand. Because then he puts it away. Um, oh, here. you're right. He did put it away. So it's like Captain America's shield. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> huh. uh, or he's just, you know, he he uh, 
made a called shot like, and he's playing an RP- a tabletop <laughs> RPG and he's like, I'm going to throw that knife and if it misses, I want to hit it there. And the DM's like, okay, maybe if you hit a 20 and he rolled a 20 and it bounced back to his hand. Awesome. <laughs> that, that is that is cool. Boom, boomerang knives. I like it. Yeah, boomerang knife. <laughs> We're bouncing around a little bit. The, going back to the transporters, I'm concerned what impact that kind of technology will have on the narrative. I love the scene where they're running through different environments and being chased. I thought that was a great scene. But the reason that Star Trek Enterprise was set 100 years before Kirk was because transporters and holodecks and translators solved too many problems and it just became too convenient to just say oh beam them out of there i mean that's one of the reasons why the orville doesn't have a transporter and yeah. now anybody can transport anywhere within reason every two minutes i i hope it doesn't get abused and it's too soon to say in a world where this kind of tech is common i could see where anti-transporter or redirecting technology is also common. Yeah, that's one of the things like anybody, there was a poll recently online that said, if you could have any Star Trek technology in today's world, what would it be? And one of the options was teleportation. I was thinking that would, so many criminals would take advantage of that, (laughs) just beam into banks and beam out. And banks would need to have some sort of a defeating technology to set up an anti-transportation field around the bank, which we know from Star Trek exists in that era. So they must be even more prevalent in the future. Yeah. I mean, this is even in D&D, Dungeons and Dragons. When your characters get high enough level, they can just teleport anywhere. And there is anti-magic devices and spells. So people just can't appear somewhere. So it's already been thought of before. Yeah, that's right. But even those spells, you can cast them, what, once a day and then need to go study it again because you a forget? Lot, a lot of times. It's similar. Yeah, <laughs> basically. So convenient. Okay. Shall we talk about the, some of the new characters we met? Yeah. Who do you want to, who, who stood up for you first? Well, this episode was really intended to introduce us primarily to Book. And there was another character at the end I want to talk about, but he was almost an afterthought in this episode. So Book, which... Uh, do the have the writers seen Firefly? Do they I know thought, that name is taken? I thought the same thing. Apparently, his name is Cleveland Booker. He said it at one point. Like, okay, I guess. Okay, so he's not a shepherd. Uh, nope, not okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I liked him. I thought it was reasonable that he disliked or distrusted Burnham, and that he was doing what he needed to do to. I mean, get flying again. In that way, he was kind of like Malcolm Reynolds, where he's not a bad guy, but he'll do bad things to achieve his own ends if necessary. And yeah, uh, yeah and I like that they eventually came to trust each other enough, anyway. Uh, which I'm sure, which by seeing, yeah, they're going to trust each other very closely in the face. <laughs> do you think there is still potential for future betrayal? No, I mean with the lips. They're going to make out. What? Really? Oh, yeah. These two are getting together. Oh, no, no. Burnham <laughs> already got together with that Klingon dude last season. Yeah, I'll let him never speak his name again. <laughs> Actually, that was all the way back in the first season. Oh, oh my uh, gosh. She kissed him then, and then, yeah, Ash Tyler. Uh, I, st- I yeah. watched that season again. I still hate his guts. Still hate him. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I don't feel like she needs a love interest this season. I feel like being... I can understand being a thousand years from her own home. She might be lonely, but I would rather she that the writers don't do that to her again. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, be nice, let her be on her own. And you know, this is something that people have talked about online. Like the people are upset, even though this is exactly the premise that we were told we we're going to get, where the show focuses on the first officer, Michael Burnham. She's the focus of the show. Uh, people online have been very upset that she's the focus of the show. <laughs> it's like they were told this in the beginning, uh, especially with how she was at like, the center of the universe for these first two seasons. And now people are like, this thing called the burn. And we have Michael Burnham. Are they related? Oh, uh, God. And I don't think so. But guys, we're not to see. We'll see. But that might imply the existence of a separate celestial event called the ham. <laughs> what the ham? And then, yeah, and then you have burn and ham, and oh. they come together. Mmm, <laughs> bacon. <sighs> Vegetarian. Anyway, I have no complaints whatsoever about her being the main character of any season. I think that's a great way to frame the show. Uh, it's worked really well for me. What I don't like is the disappearance of the discovery, because here's why. Back in January, you and I got to know a brand new crew with Star Trek Picard. Two months ago, we got to learn a brand new crew with Star Trek Lower Decks. I was hoping for a return to something familiar this month, and instead we're getting a whole new crew in Season 3 of Discovery. Yeah, I'm pretty sure these two, uh, Burnham and the crew, are not going to meet up again until at least halfway through the season. We know that most of the crew is back because they're in the opening credits, but... Uh, maybe it'll be sooner than that because this episode was titled part one. Maybe part two is the reunification. I think what we're going to have is two separate storylines that will meet up. The ship will, the crew will be part of the series until then, but the two are not going to meet until at least halfway. Oh, wait, wait. Are you saying we're going to have episodes about what's happening with the discovery separate from Michael? Well, or they'll enter, they'll weave them in like they do a lot of shows, like a story B plot kind of thing uh but the two are not i don't think the two are going to get together until well into the season i don't know halfway is just throwing it out there but well into the season i mean it's not uncommon for us to have two different plots in one serial season season one for example had the klingon war and the mirror universe so we might have something like that this season i don't know yeah it's gonna be two different stories for a while i'm (laughs) almost certain of it I'm also looking forward to their explanation for why Discovery got lost because the Red Angel suit, granted, had previously only transported itself around. Maybe it wasn't built to transport an entire starship, but nonetheless, the technology seemed pretty sound, and yet she didn't show up at Terralysium, or at least not by that name, and Discovery was not right behind her. So I'm curious, WTF? We saw this with the Quantum Slipstream, which was also mentioned here, uh, where... In the episode of The Timeless, where Chakotay and Harry Kim make it as they're trying to guide Voyager back home, uh, but Voyager has an issue and they pop out right behind, And but there's so much distance to travel between where the two popped out that it took forever to find them. One of my favorite episodes of Star Trek ever. I love Timeless. It's really good. It's really good. And so you add in the additional dimension of time to that kind of technology, and I guess yeah somebody slipping out at the wrong moment could be as they said tomorrow or a thousand years later yeah or a hundred years previously maybe discovery's already been around for a while oh speaking of back to tech <laughs> that opening scene we see yeah. uh sahil uh sitting there watching uh this graphic of the galaxy being scanned for signs of something and then at the end of the episode they talk to him and he's like 
I can go about, uh, what was it, 600 light years away, which is nothing in the grand scheme of things. And like you're scanning the whole day in Galaxy. At least like, the graphic is showing you're scanning the whole thing. But uh, it sounds like he does not have that radius that the graphic implied. They're like me trying to look for the weather here in Fargo, but watching the global radar, weather radar. I didn't recognize that schematic as being of the entire galaxy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was clearly the Milky Way, to, at least my viewing. Oh, okay. My interpretation of it. But uh, hey, what do I know? I could be wrong. Uh, but there, <laughs> I did try to look closer. And there were some sectors highlighted here and there that were unreadable. Unless I have like a massive TB, maybe I could. Uh, but he did mention in that scene at the very end, there's two Federation ships still flying around. And what significance do you attach to that? Uh, I have no clue yet, other than Federation is gone, more or less. Uh, I'm going to say less than uh, we think. <laughs> uh, we haven't even talked about that yet. Uh, but there are still some ships flying around, and they're within range of here. Uh, so that means there might be more out there. They're just within range of this station. I was curious why Sahil waited 40 years to have somebody put up that banner when there apparently are other Federation starships that could have done it for him. They might not go this way. I mean, this is... They're near part of space where the Orions have basically ruined subspace with, for two light years around this The planet. Gorn. Yeah, the uh, Gorn. Excuse me, the Gorn. And... um. And so, and Book even mentioned, like, no one goes out this far. Uh, and so, uh, we might yet still find the re- reason why there's very few people going out here unless you need to. I would. I am very curious to see those other ships. I'm sure that in some capacity, we're going to see more of the Federation. And I'm wondering if it's more like the Rangers that Seven of Nine belongs to, where it's less about exploration and science and more about just scraping by and defending people. Yeah. Uh, I can see that. I can see that. Um, you know, this whole season here. Now, I wrote down a note here. Uh, this season seems to me that they're implying they're going to rebuild the Federation. And I was thinking, like, if that's the case, we're kind of getting the building of the Federation that we lost, uh, storyline that we lost when we lost Enterprise too early. Yeah, the series finale showed us a brief glimpse of the future where... Humans, Vulcans, Andorians, and Tellarites all form the Federation, but it really jumped to the end of that story. We didn't get to see everything in between. Yeah, like we were supposed to get like the Romulan War and basically the founding of the Federation. Yeah, never got it. I mean, we saw glimpses in Voyager where Janeway tried to inspire Federation ideals amongst the aliens that she met. Like there was that one episode where they were all trapped in sort of a pocket dimension. Uh-huh. And and people were like basically pirates stealing parts off each other. And at one point they got the part they needed to escape. And Janeway said, we are not going to use this because it came to us by piratical means. And we are the Federation and that's not how we work. Yeah. I mean, I Yeah. And so she was able to band together other people trapped in that pocket dimension to work together as opposed to feeding off each other, which they had been doing and which didn't work. And by working together, they got out. A little sort of a little mini Federation. Uh, we're still talking about no, now it bounced around about the characters. Yes. I got a kick out of the male Orion. He just has amused me. I think subtitles called him Ethor or Ithor. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I found him highly amusing too, and I couldn't put my finger on why. Maybe because he was just so human in his mannerisms. 
And I don't mean that as a bad thing. I don't mean like he was out of character or anything. I just mean like, I feel like I could find this guy as some sort of a mid-level manager in any corporate office in modern America. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't the big show. Like he wasn't enterprise. Uh, He was just a normal guy. Right. He's like, did you change the dosage again? I told you not to do that. And like, (laughs) he just seemed very petty in some way, but you know, that was the thing he had control over. So he was going to throw his weight around for whatever good it did him. I liked him. Uh, I also do not like Discovery's versions of Andorians. In fact, I really wish I was thinking about this. I was trying to go to sleep last night. I, after what the TNG era that expands all the shows at time period, you kind of got used to how things looked at for 20 years. And that means I, I really don't like the Klingons look, the Klingon look. I really don't. I'm not appreciative of the Andorians here. It's not saying they're wrong. Cause I was thinking like a TOS person would less likely recognize a uh, Klingon from that time period. They even make a joke about it in deep space nine. Sure. But I don't know. Something about this just feels like I'm still in that. I don't know. I just don't like this. Some of these characters aren't obvious to me until I'm, I don't know how to describe it, but it just feels off. What was different about these Andorians compared to the ones we know? Uh, they give them um, more, uh, uh, what's, there's more structure in their face. Uh, instead of more just human flat blue skin, uh, they mm. have more angles and more, uh, I think they try to go for a more, but in not quite insectoid, but they, they definitely have um, things in their cheeks, like cheekbones that are different shaped. And it just felt off. I mean, you're right. They do look different. And that is something I picked up on. And I think you're right about the facial structure. Um, there are possible in-universe explanations, like with the Romulans, Northerners look different, for example. With Andorians, you have the white ones, which was originally a color error on the animated series. And uh, I don't know. Uh, but you're right. Sometimes it does feel like change for the sake of change. Maybe it's change over 900 years. Like humans used to be shorter, for example. Yeah. Maybe Andorians get more facial structure as time goes on. Yeah, but, but then we also saw these Andorians in season one of Star Trek Discovery when in the mirror universe. That's right. Uh, and they and they looked like this back then, too? Yeah, they did. Like, um, it's not bad. It just feels off to me. And that could be just because I've seen so much Star Trek already. Someone who's starting with this air, they don't know. I mean, and that's fine. Right. I was talking to somebody the other day who wants to get into more of Star Trek and she recommended, she asked me, where do I start? And I said, well, there's about 800 episodes and 14 movies. Good way to scare person off. (laughs) Right. But, you know, somebody who, like you and I, we might sit down and decide, I want to rewatch Deep Space Nine and there's seven seasons. Just like other people might say, I want to rewatch The Good Place or The West Wing, which people do. But if you sit down and you say, I want to rewatch Star Trek, well, there goes the next five years of your life. <laughs> uh-huh. And you're not going to be watching anything else. So, yeah, it can be a little impenetrable. And various shows have tried to make it more accessible, like Star Trek Enterprise, when it first aired, wasn't even called Star Trek. And since it was temporarily set before anything else, there was no backstory you needed to know. And that didn't really work in my opinion i thought the fourth season when they embraced their heritage was when they did their best 
Yeah, I liked the idea Enterprise was going for, but no, it just did not pan out. People just knew it was Star Trek, and that's why they, it's season three. They're like, okay, you got us. It's Star Trek. We we fooled you. <laughs> we didn't fool you. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Um, about the discovery here, yeah. I, I guess it's not wrong. It's just not me. But uh, this whole mercantile ship thing, I don't know if it's even a ship, but it's floating there. It made no sense logic logistically. There's this massive floating uh, a pen <laughs> floating above a city apparently called Requiem. Uh, and But it's just a long hallway you just walk up to uh, from the what, or long bridge. But this thing made no sense sciencey space sense at all uh maybe future magic it kind of reminded me of the golden saucer in final fantasy 7 where it's part of a city but sort of separate yeah and maybe it is a ship maybe it does dock at different places i mean if they really want to be a a hub for commerce then it would make sense for them to maybe not be tied down to one planet maybe and this planet seemed Pretty fine on itself. That was a pretty decent sized city with some decent sized skyscrapers. Uh, for a neck of the woods, where it's, there's not much a uh, neck of the woods there, holy oh, yeah, geez, the action coming <laughs> up. But uh, where warp travel is apparently difficult to do. Uh, I was surprised that book just happened to crash land on the planet that he was going to anyway. Yeah, I, I was when they come around the corner, like, oh, there's a city here, like, oh, okay. We'll yeah, go with when, it. <laughs> when, they, when they said they were going to Mercantile, I was like, well, first you have to get your ship repaired so you can go there, right? And they're like, no, we're just going to walk. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Oh, but if you had a personal transporter, why didn't you just use that? Oh, he didn't. They, they, they got oh, those they on it? Mercantile. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right, right. I forgot. You're right. I forgot. Uh, can uh, we talk a little bit about Sahil at the end of the episode? Yeah, let's do that. Or should we talk about the burn? We let's talk about that too, but let's talk about Sahil. Okay, I want to see if just if they merged, merged together or not. In your when you're okay. thinking, so let's talk about Sahil. Yeah, so he is not a commissioned Starfleet officer, but he's on this little derelict spaceship by himself, you know, scanning for Starfleet ships, and he is notable for a couple of reasons. One, he is a third generation Starfleet personnel, and he's been doing this for forty years, and somehow he has not gone insane insane like he still dresses <laughs> like nowadays with everybody working from home there are entire weeks where i don't wear pants yeah i was you know thinking similar like oh this is rough <laughs> and like this this guy is not eating whatever feral cats he finds on the space station okay well good for him uh and also and you and I were talking about this bef- a bit before the show. It's notable that there have not been that many Indian actors on Star Trek. No, we had to go digging. Yeah, we found a sh- very short list. Like there was Persis Kambata from the very first Star Trek, the motion picture movie. And then you corrected me that Khan, the character, <laughs> was Indian, <laughs> but certainly the actor was not. And definitely not in the in Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, but yeah, they're just, there really haven't been that many. As you mentioned in season two of Discovery, Tilly's Spore Phantom was Indian. Uh, but if Sahil becomes a main character in this season of Star Trek, then I think that's going to be notable uh, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I think we'll be seeing more of him. I hope so. I hope he isn't just part of this two-parter. Although I am disappointed that like at the end of the episode, it was... Book, Burnham, and Sahil all saying together, you would think that they would have equal value, weight, and importance to the story. 
And yet we spent the whole episode getting to know Book and, oh yeah, by the way, Sahil's here. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I know that we still have the whole rest of the season to get to know him, but he felt very shoehorned in. And we also had the rest of the epi- or episodes of part one. Right. Right. And maybe part two will be more about him and less about Book. But uh, I suspect he's not a major player, but he is a player. Yes. I mean, like, I, I, I just think that narratively, maybe they could have ended this episode by saying, like, let's go to this abandoned Starfleet space station and there, and then next week picks up with them meeting Sahil, and he becomes the focus of that episode. Uh, you know what? With the way they ended this one, now that you mentioned it, I think next episode is going to be Discovery when they appear uh, in this future. And, you know, I was thinking, like, it's possible there's going to be a time jump between Michael and Discovery here. It might be weeks. It might be months. Oh, uh, you, you know what? That's a good point because I feel like in some of the promotional material for this season, we saw Michael with much longer hair than she had in this episode. Uh-huh. And so that seems plausible. I mean, who knows what tech they have in 900 years from now or from then, um, from future now. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a time jump or even if there isn't, uh, from our perspective, it will be a drastic difference of time between both storylines meeting, Mm. whether it be weeks, months, years, uh, I don't know. So do you think it's possible that we might be reunited with Discovery early in the season, but in Michael's timeline, it'll be many years? Uh, or, or some large amount of time. Yeah. Yeah. Because the same thing happened in Star Trek Eleven, the J.J. Abrams reboot, when... I'm sorry, what was the Romulan villain? Uh, oh, I almost went to uh, Nero. Nero. Yeah. Like, Nero and Spock went through the black hole at the same time, and Spock came out years later, and Nero just spent all that time waiting for him, and some time in a Klingon prison as well. But... Yeah, so this, it's kind of the same thing here. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I can see that. Do you want to talk about the burn? Yeah, so the burn and the whole Federation falling apart because of this. It's just a, an interesting concept uh, where something happened. Well, Book says the galaxy turned left. And I don't think he means literally. Because <laughs> a moment later he says... Uh, Dilithium one day just blew up and the Federation couldn't say why or how or it's not going to happen again. So everyone started like, you know what? Maybe space travel isn't the safest thing. We're just going to stay home. Uh, And the Federation just kind of slowly just didn't exist. Right. I mean, Starfleet is dependent on being able to communicate and travel to other planets. And if all these planets suddenly become isolated from each other, then... What's the point of Starfleet? Yeah, if no one's driving around anywhere. Uh, yeah. And Book although, even mentioned, like, oh, go ahead. Although, as Michael says, it's not just about travel. It's also about a, a vision. But yeah. you still need the tools to implement that vision. Yeah. And it's, it's, I'm interested to see how they slowly start explaining this uh, over time here. Like, what, what exactly happened? Uh, Book even mentioned, like, they try quantum. That doesn't work. Quantum Slipstream, like Voyager. And they mentioned another, another one, too, a third one I can't recall off the top of my head. Uh, but no one else has Spore Drive. <laughs> well, no, because Discovery was wiped from the meta from the historical uh, records. Exactly, that's what I mean. So 
Discovery will be fine. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Huh. I mean, they could do warp as well, but uh, they have yeah, yeah. they have other means. But you know, stars do move, and I I feel like I, I don't know if the spore drive is that dependent on star charts and where you are relative to each other. But after nine hundred years, the constellations might look a little different. I mean, a spore drive is probably like a TARDIS, where it's all uh, what was it <laughs> time <laughs> and, and dimensions relative in space. Yeah, like the, the TARDIS knows you're trying to get to this spot, even if the galaxy has moved a number of light years uh, from mm. where you took off from. I confess that my knowledge of the TARDIS is at least forty years old, so I'm a little <laughs> behind on how that works. But. Well, I mean, okay, so so like the example, like I, I've thought this in my head when I was younger because uh, I love time travel. If you're on mm. the DeLorean and you go back to 1955, if you just try to take off from where you are uh, in 2020 and try to go 1955, uh, you have to make sure that I mean, do you just appear where you left your time period? Which means if it's that different month you are going to appear in space. That's right. Because that you have to thing. take into account the location of the Earth. Exactly. So that's how the TARDIS makes up for that, in, <laughs> just in name alone. And so apparently maybe it's Spore Drive does too. <laughs> space that, magic. Space magic. Oh, and there were other space things in this episode, Oh, gosh. Right? Yeah, I, I made a note of this. <laughs> uh, book at the beginning, he mentions how he's space broke. And that reminded me of the original series, especially the original pilot. Uh, they were constantly talking, constantly talking about space law and space medicine and space this and space that. And I don't know if it was an intentional nod, but it just made me think of it and cracked me up. It was pretty funny. I liked that. <laughs> you know, and the and he is a courier, and the episode opens with him. I guess we're not talking about the burn anymore. We can come back to it. With him running away with a precious cargo, which is temperature controlled, so it must be ice cream. And at the end, the Andorians and the Orions, it seems like they know what it is the cargo is going to be. And they open it up, and it's a transworm, and it eats them all. And I'm thinking to myself, if the Andorians and the Orions knew that it was a transworm in there, why didn't they come better prepared to not get eaten? Yeah, I... So that could imply they knew something uh, endangered, but they didn't know what. Uh, or it could imply they're complete idiots, as all vil- uh, villains of the week are. Or they thought, you know what? I'm uh, Lurian, uh, that Morn is. You know, I'm immune to this. Oh, crap, I'm not. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought that if they really wanted the cargo that badly, but the cargo was that dangerous, that they would have just taken the entire ship as opposed to just releasing the cargo. Yeah, I mean, who knows what super future space tech they have where they can just pull a little doohickey out of their belt and throw it at the thing and it beams back to a safe location. But none of them got there. They should have done that. That would have been great. They should have. But then, uh, you know, we get a scene that I wrote like, wow, uh, we saw a scene here that we've already seen on Lower Decks of all places. That's right. It was the very first episode of Lower Decks, right? Yeah, where the creature like, sucks on boimler <laughs> yeah and then uh, boimler's slime is what allows him to cure the zombie virus yeah and so maybe uh molly's slime was looking to cure the burn mm. <laughs> i'm kidding about that but uh it was kind of <laughs> neat to see future endangered species things being saved and book doing weird things with the water to make it grow healy things yeah and be able to talk to transforms yeah and glow like is he a hybrid or an alien 
or an altered human? We don't know yet. Yeah, he just said that every now and then in his family, one generation spawns somebody like him. So that implies that it's natural and organic, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's human. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Uh, All these little things that we just don't have answers for yet. And there was another character we haven't talked about yet, and that is Grudge. (laughs) Apparently people know about Grudge, or at least the uh, Cosmo, which... I thought it was a Eurydian, uh, but apparently on the Ready Room, the show, the companion show, uh, oh. it was mentioned he was a Beetlejuicean that was seen in uh, I think the motion picture or one of those sh- in one of the movies. Wait, who's Beetlejuicean? Uh, the guy who was chasing a uh, book. Oh, okay. His name is Cosmo, which yeah. might be a reference to one of the directors that used to direct Star Trek before he died. Oh, uh, named Cosmo. Well, I mean, I mean, if I was working with somebody that closely that Cosmo was with Book, I'd probably get to know his pet. I mean, I have coworkers on Zoom whose pets show up in the videos uninvited. Yeah. And it's inevitable that we ask, hey, who's that? And they'll be like, oh, that's Grudge. He's my cat. Yeah. Oh, I say it's not implausible. <laughs> but he didn't make a comment. <laughs> uh, I didn't get it at first. My friend, just before we started recording, helped fill me in. And it was supposed to be a joke. Cosmo makes this comment that he's going to take Grudge and Grudge could feed a planet. Yeah, because he's so big. I did not make the connection that he's such a big cat. I was just thinking, like, what? Does this mean Grudge is more? I was trying to think way too deep on this. Like, is there <laughs> something about Grudge? Is he like another creature? Like like, uh, like, a, like a changeling or something? And, or does he change? Like, what is going on? What is this? What is the secret? And then my friend messaged me, like, yeah, it just means it's a big cat. Like, oh, yeah. Thanks. Sometimes a big cat is just a big cat. <laughs> I wonder if, in addition to perhaps founding a new federation or revitalizing the one that is on its last legs in this far-flung future, if we might see further time travel where they go back and try to stop the burn. Yeah, it's like doing quantum leap stuff. Wait, you don't mean like (laughs) the Scott Bakula show? Yes, go back and correct things that that once went wrong. I thought you meant they were like going to leap into somebody's body. I was like, that's not technology we've seen yet in Star Trek. <laughs> it's 900 years in the future. Who knows? Right. And, you know, it could be like altered carbon where you just download yourself into different bodies. Why yeah. not? <laughs> I mean, we know, for example, that Georgiou needs to get back to the present because she has her own Section 31 show coming up. And I don't think that's set in the 31st century. Yeah, I keep thinking that too. Uh, she's got to get back. <laughs> At least in the world I envision of the show existing. Who knows? I just assumed, you know, quote unquote, current era for Discovery. But maybe future Section 31. Who knows? I mean, I could see them perhaps sending, no pun intended, an emissary back where the Discovery stays in the future. But rather than directly try to intervene with the burn and go into that era, they send Georgiou back to where she came from and say, hey, look, you now have 800 years to prevent this from happening. I mean, that happened in DC Comics. They had this series called DC One Million. The heroes from a million months in the future and today's heroes swapped places. And that turned out to be a terrible idea. And then they found out, oh no, our present day heroes who are currently one million months in the future are suffering from this amazing threat and we need to get there and save them. And one of the characters is like, we don't need to time travel 
million months into the future to fix this. All we have to do is wait. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so they just put this plan in motion that took a million months to execute. Mm-hmm. And when this threat occurred, the solution was already there because they'd been planning for it. Time travel. Yeah. It's kind of like Bill and Ted. Oh, we'll go back later and put this key here. <laughs> and here it is. By the way, I haven't seen the third movie yet. I'm very me excited neither, to, me I want to, but I was waiting until it was not 30 bucks to do so. Really? That's how much it costs? I think it, I, it was a bunch. I mean, I guess, you know, if you two people go to see it in the theater together, that's how much it costs. And theaters aren't a thing anymore. Yeah. Anyhow. Okay. Right. I have thoughts about Star Trek, but that's the conclusion of my thoughts about this episode. Okay. I want to mention one more thing. There was something in this episode I hated, and that was the fight on the mercantile, especially the second time I watched it. So much shaky cam. It was so shaky. Uh, It was ludicrous how much the cameraman was bopping and weaving and bipping and bopping and... I'm playing skip it. He was playing. <laughs> he was playing. Yeah, it's ludicrous speed. He was playing skip it while filming this scene. Hated it. <laughs> I don't know if it's because I'm getting old. Really feel? <laughs> like the well, context of the fight was neat, but I don't know if it was getting old or what. But I saw this and just pissed me off. <laughs> well, you know, I find that I don't do well with prolonged bouts of shaky cam. The second and third Jason Bourne films with Matt Damon were directed by somebody other than the, the first movie. The first movie I loved. The second third one, I could not stand. And it was by the same director who did United 93, which is about 9-11. Mm-hmm. And that film, I actually had to leave and get sick because it was just so shaky. Oh. Less shaky can to hide your bad action. Right? <laughs> I, I, that's what they do. I mean, the quick cuts and the shaky cam to make things seem more powerful than they are. Like, apparently you need someone doing a better job of this or your direct or your editor director whatever needs to tone it down because they got excited because they're like i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this and, oh that didn't look so well i um, mean it was a deliberate choice but if we can argue whether or not it was a good choice yeah oh they were hiding something <laughs> conspiracy theories everywhere uh, i mean something wasn't going right in this filming or something wasn't looking right and so like we're just gonna shaky this up Chaos. Rah! We're going We're to shaky sick. this up. I love that phrase. I'm going to start using that. Let's get shaky. <laughs> but uh, you know, before thoughts. before that fight scene, we learned that Burnham is going to stop being reflexively supportive. Yes, I did. I, I got a kick out of seeing uh, hi, hi, Michael Burnham. I wonder why the whatever they shot her up with didn't work exactly as expected because she's a mundane run-of-the-mill human and granted from 900 years ago, but maybe like in the TV show Time Tracks, like that guy, Darren, came from the future and could hold his breath underwater longer because humans had evolved that way. So maybe the dosage was for 31st century evolved humans and not wherever Michael's from. There's even precedent in Star Trek Discovery for this uh, or something similar when uh, people from the Mirror Universe have more sensitivity to light. That's right. Hmm. So humans are a little different based on when and where they're from. Yeah. Okay. So you have, uh, that's all the thoughts I had on this episode. Uh, well, I mean, otherwise, other than I'm intrigued what's coming next. Uh, I wasn't on edge of my seat here, but I didn't enjoy my time. I would say that this, as far as Discovery se- season finales go, is not as good as season two. 
yeah, I think that's the one where I was like, yes, let's go. Let's do this. And here I'm like, okay, cool. Show me what you got. Uh, yeah. I, I was kind of slow. With, for me, the beginning was slow, even if they had a bunch of firefight. Uh, I was just like, okay. Uh, but by the end, I'm like, okay. All right, let's go. Except for that fight scene I hated. Other than Discovery Season 1, has there ever been Star Trek seasons that began with a two-parter? Uh, Best of Both Worlds was a opener. Yeah, Time Zero, yeah. Best of Both Worlds. We get plenty of cliffhangers, yeah. but... Uh, I guess only on a technicality, because a lot of the premieres are two-hour premieres, and then they break them up for later. Mm. I mean, I guess that's technically what's going on here, too. I don't buy it. <laughs> but like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series premiere, and that's not season premiere. Like, that's yeah. different. I don't think it, it's working for, for Discovery. Yeah, that's the closest Either's, I can think of. I mean, even you, Susan, and I have talked about how season one of Discovery, those first two episodes are very different from the rest of the season. I even had the same. It's so pronounced. I even watched it again a few weeks ago. So pronounced. So I, I do not <laughs> like those two episodes. Do not and like you even, especially the dialogue when they're on the desert planet, right? Yeah, hated it. But that's a different. <laughs> that's a different episode. Uh, or I mean, well, that's an episode we already recorded. But I just mentioned it again. Yeah, hate that. Hate that dialogue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think I have anything else to say about this episode either. Uh, uh, but I do want to mention about Star Trek. You and I were talking about some stuff last week that I want to follow up on. First is Captain Janeway. We were talking about her because she's going to be on Star Trek Prodigy. And after we ended that recording, I realized that there is an event coming up later this month in dedication to Captain Janeway because on Star Trek Voyager, it was determined that she, the character, is from Bloomington, Indiana. And so the town of Bloomington, Indiana, just like Riverside, Iowa, celebrates James T. Kirk, Bloomington is going to celebrate Captain Janeway. They had a groundbreaking event on June 27th, 2020 for a, uh, a birthplace monument. And at, now that the groundbreaking has been completed, they're going to unveil the completed monument on October 24th, 2020. That is next week, Saturday the 24th. So if you are hearing this in time and it is safe for you to travel to Bloomington during a pandemic then you can be there for the unveiling of Captain Janeway's birthplace monument. Yes, uh, it's, it's fun and exciting. I love it when cities acknowledge Star Trek because we used to be so niche. And this is a way in which I feel we have become mainstream. And I like that. I, I like it. I enjoy it a lot. <laughs> Another thing is that they have announced that Star Trek, as far as TV shows and storylines go, are already being mapped out for the next seven years through 2027. Yeah. Oh, oh. And today, Discovery was officially uh, revealed to the beginning of season four. Oh, I did not know that. Uh, just again, uh, two hours ago before we re- record this. Wow. Okay. So we know we're getting... Yeah. Oh, and it says the release date may precede Picard season two. That's yeah, so filming the, and whatnot. Yeah, that's one of the headlines I'm seeing. Of course, it's so hard to film anything during a pandemic. Yeah, and apparently, uh, Discovery season four is going to begin. At least the plan right now uh, to start recording on November second or fourth in <laughs> Toronto next month. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Think that's ambitious, but hey. <laughs> I mean, as long as it's safe for everybody to do so, then we already know that the premiere of Discovery season three was delayed due to the pandemic. The shooting was done, but now they had to do all the editing remotely and that slowed things down. 
Yeah. So, okay. I just hope we don't lose anybody important. Right. Wow. But yeah, I mean, if you think about it, we have, have they said that they're going to get a second season of Lower Decks? Uh, if they have, uh, it's escaped me and I've forgotten. Okay, I will try to research that while I'm looking this up. Oh, it says the second season is in production right on Wikipedia. Great. So we can expect Discovery Season 4, Lower Deck Season 2, Picard Season 2, Strange New World Season 1, Prodigy Season 1, and Section 31 Season 1. So much. So that's, that's six shows, and we've only ever had two at a time. There was overlap between TNG and Deep Space Nine, and then overlap between Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And granted, actually, none of these shows are overlapping. They're alternating. Yeah. And the, and the seasons are shorter than we used to get. So I don't think it's too much Star Trek. I think it's more like a variety of Star Trek. I would agree. Uh, I mean, because they're so such different in their storytelling, like you can basically be considerate different shows entirely. They just happen to have some of the same themes, but it's still like future. Future in space. Right. Yeah, I mean, if you think about this year, we've gone from Picard to Lower Decks, and there could not be two Star Trek shows more different. Mm-hmm. And now we're going into Discovery, and we're yet to discover what that is going to be about. So, yeah, this is a diverse year for Star Trek fans, and that is a good thing. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I know there's some people who are like, okay, this is a lot of Star Trek. I'm not sure about this, uh, but I think it's pretty cool. Also, speaking of Picard, I'm still reading the novel, The Last Best Hope, that you and I were talking about. It's about the Romulan supernova and how Picard tried to launch a or lead a rescue mission. One of the things that is not very subtle about this book is the Romulans are not starting the evacuation in time to save everybody because a lot of them don't believe it's actually happening, the supernova. And that is such a metaphor for global warming. Oh, Lordy. Yeah. Uh, But also, we get an interesting look inside Romulan culture and Romulus itself. Uh, We see how Picard met Rafi and how Agnes met Maddox and stuff like that. We, However, I don't think we're going to see Spock and Red Matter. That doesn't seem to be what the book is really about, which is too bad because I find that fascinating. Um, And I... Overall, I, I've, I told you how some of the characters didn't quite ring true to me. Separate from that, the the it's not a gripping book. I feel like it's a lot of the characters are much more formal than I would expect them to be. Even Picard, who is himself a pretty formal guy. Uh huh. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to finishing it. It's <laughs> <laughs> like some of the characterization just still is off. Even when it's on, I just don't think it's that interesting. So, oh, and it does bring up a good point, though, which is those synthetic life forms that were invented to work on Mars, we in Picard did not see those synths being used in any other context. And granted, that's probably because there was a ban on them at that point. But if there hadn't been a ban, why not have a synth in every home? I mean, those were some incredibly adept and yet non-sentient androids. And so it would have been perfectly ethical to mass produce them and have them do a lot of labor. Yeah. Which is stuff that Maddox talked about in Measure of a Man, and you know, like having just an army of datas, and something that the doctor on Voyager talked about, which was why not have all these doctors 
just you know scraping all these mine ores you know it's very easy to mass produce sentient life but those synths were non-sentient so that seems like a good compromise anyway it, yeah. well, what all i'm saying is it has ramifications for future culture and now that the ban is lifted who knows what might happen that might be what season two of picard is about uh i can't wait i can't wait yeah okay just like a good podcast should we've run longer than the episode we're talking about <laughs> but not necessarily talking about discovery the whole time uh, oh, of course, this is a Star Trek <laughs> podcast. I think our website might still say we're a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Maybe we need to rebrand ourselves. A Star Trek podcast. Yeah, just like 50 other shows out there. <laughs> a new Trek. I don't know. But anyway, uh, maybe we should wrap it up. Yes, I am looking forward to chatting with you with each consecutive episode of Discovery this season, Bree. Until then, I'm Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Mastin. Until next week. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 61 for Friday, October 16th, 2020. I'm your co-host, Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sa- Wait, wait, you didn't do that right. <laughs> what I, what I'm Sabriel Mastin. We usually give our ranks. You just said oh, your name. You're right. But, I'm sorry. You know, we can just open it with that because I think it's funny. Uh- <laughs> no, no, no. Let's start over. Let's start over. I got okay. it. Okay. Sorry. I have too many podcasts. That's the <laughs> You're not Chief Engineer Ken on all of them? <laughs> you would think, right? <laughs> Behind the scenes, I am.